0: Welcome to Coaching with an Accent, the monthly research podcast dedicated to sport coaching. Christmas is approaching and December brings a very special edition. For the first time, we interview non-native English speakers, bringing two Portuguese academics to the show. Our main guest is Professor Duarte Araújo, director of the Laboratory of Expertise in Sport of the Faculty of Human Kinetics at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. Currently the president of the Portuguese Society of Sport Psychology and a member of the Portuguese National Sports Council, Professor Araujo has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, numerous books and book chapters, and his work has achieved more than 10,000 citations worldwide. He is particularly interested in sport expertise, decision-making, ecological dynamics and non-linear pedagogy. A keen endurance runner, Professor Araújo is also a lecturer on the Professional Masters in High-Performance Football Coaching at the Faculty of Human Kinetics in Lisbon. Without further delays, let's move on to our conversation with Professor Duarte (music) Araújo. Professor Araújo, welcome to Coaching with an Accent, or as we should say in Portuguese, seja bem-vindo! We have seen in the past few years an increasing interest from researchers and practitioners on expertise and skill acquisition, dynamic systems theory, ecological dynamics, um, perception action coupling. How did you become interested in these
1: topics? It started a long time ago, um, maybe in the early 90s, uh, when I was doing my, my graduate, my, uh, when I was an uh, undergraduate student here at the Faculty of Human Kinetics. And um, I had the chance to have uh, very good um, uh, um, pedagogical teachers, teachers of ped- pedagogy of sports, like Erminio Barreto from basketball, uh, like Jorge Castelo from uh, soccer. And they, they showed me how, how the sport tasks are... So demanding from the psychological, physical, and uh, interactional point of view. So I was really amazed with that. I was uh, very much into psychology since my even before I was in the faculty, and um, I what I read about psychology was not expressed in the way they were showing me how how psychology and cognition works in situ. So that was the beginning of my interest in to see how do we uh, function, how, how, how do we do the things we do. So how, how is it possible that we have um, uh, a way of functioning that is clearly dependent on the task, on the sports task we are doing. So this was more or less the beginning. And uh, with that in mind, I started to go a bit deeper into sports psychology. But sports psychology was very much detached from the environment. It was something more based on reaction time, on judging based on lights and signs on the screen. I was not really convinced that that approach could explain how we work as sports people. Uh, How can this explain the expert behaviors we see in competition? So, uh, well, I tried to develop that approach, that traditional approach as much as I could. And I was, well, I was trying to do the best of, of it, but I was not convinced. So I had the chance of um, starting my master's, my, uh, my master's degree, which was an European masters. So I had a big part of it, a semester in, the, in Amsterdam, and when I was in Amsterdam, I had a chance to meet people that were really into this perspective, like Herbert uh, Savelsberg, like Peter Baek, uh, like Claire Michaels, and, uh, and Raul Odians, who did a wonderful work with uh, soccer referees. And, um, well, when I was discussing with them, I, I was seeing a, a way of really tackling these issues much more based on what sports is about, and not really bringing the athletes to the lab and trying to extrapolate from the lab for things that were not so great as they were when they were on, on the field. So um, that was how the things started to flow in my mind. I also had a chance to meet uh, Reino Bootsman, who was really influential on that time. He was really asking me very good questions. I was studying sailing at the time, sailing, so it's a, it's a very environmental demanding sport. And then uh, it was more about this date about ninety seven that I met Kit Davids. I, I really enjoyed the works he was doing with Mark Williams. Um, well, and um, especially those that he wrote as the first author. It was curious. When I see when I saw Williams and Davids, it was interesting. But well, it was it was uh, interesting because it was related with decision making and perception. But when I saw David and Williams, that approach from David was really new for me, and I was really keen into it. I didn't understood it fully on that time, but I was really uh, trying to know more about it. So I met him in '97, and uh, uh, he was bringing these dynamical systems approach and is ecological psychology approach to sports um, but it was more from a, a theoretical point of view more kind of bring recommendations uh, bridge, bridging the gap between what was being uh, what was doing what the people were doing in sport, in the sports sciences and what people were doing in dynamical systems and ecological psychology so wh- when we met, I presented him a way of operationalizing these concepts, of studying cognition, and decision-making, and psychology in situ. So this was how ecological dynamics starts, from his uh, theoretical background and his um, um, uh, concerns of applying this to sports sciences, and somehow I could work with him a way of operationalizing this in sports, and we started working since the late 90s until today. You touch a lot of
0: important areas there. Um, I have spoken with some coaches who have in a a certain way complained that the language used in a lot of articles in those areas of uh, perception-action coupling, constraints-led approach, is very technical, very hard to understand. Could you help me unpacking some of the key concepts um, in a more
1: clear language?
0: Yeah, that that is a very important
1: point, of course. The issue is that all our scientific language is a little bit mechanicist in its origin. So the main idea in the traditional approach is that the world is a kind of input and then everything happens inside of the individual and all this came out as an output. So this is quite a machine-based approach. Like all this process is sequential and the world is there until it touches in the receptors of the individual, then everything happens inside and then we implement our response to the outside. So if we wanted to give a different view, we have a little bit to to cut this language, to, to, to express it differently. Otherwise, we will be saying the same thing and we didn't want that at all. So, and one of these issues is that we really wanted to understand how people behave in the environment And this means that the individual is not independent from the environment. The individual is an important part of the ecosystem where he or she is. So this means that our language should not be as a system that interacts with another system, but as how these two systems co-evolve together, how these two systems work together. And this implies a language that is not organismically based, is not based on the individual, on what happens inside, but how this interaction occurs. So and because of this, all the language is different from the one we are used to here, because it's not we are not describing s- strictly the internal processes. We are uh, describing these um, interactive processes that happen when the individual is acting in the environment. So this is the origin of the, the need of a different language. And because of this, because of the. to, to, to not be mechanicists in our language, we start to describe uh, how this interaction, how this coupling between the individual and the environment happens. So this means that uh, all our explanations are centered on the coupling, and this implies a description that makes this clear. And because of this description, to make this clear, it's not common, it is more difficult to understand in the first instance. This does not mean that uh, the individuals do not influence the coupling. Of course, our emotions, our physical conditioning influence this coupling. But the issue is not. We don't do this because of these emotions or because of this physical conditioning. We do this because we are influencing this coupling. So all the explanations are based on this coupling. And this coupling, to be formalized, don't be something like um, just rhetorical or metaphysical, should be uh, scientifically formalized. And all this formalization is based on dynamical systems. And dynamical systems came from physics. So this means that we have to use this physical language to explain how this coupling with the environment happens. So to to unpack a little bit this language, this means that... Uh, When an individual is doing some tasks, there are some natural solutions that emerge and other solutions that do not emerge. These solutions, these these, uh, paths for exploration, we call these attractors. These attractors are based on on these invitations that the environment makes to the individual. These invitations or these possibilities for action are called affordances. So, somehow, attractor attractor is a way of uh, physically describing what is an affordance. So, so I'm trying to unpack these two concepts, affordances and and attractors. But this also means that we also perceive things in the environment that we want to avoid. And these these negative affordances, if you want, are called in dynamical systems, repellers, some things that... Uh, put us away from it. So if you imagine a landscape in front of you, you have places that attract you and places that are repellers for your behavior. So you have some hills repellers and you have some valleys which are the attractors. So and this this is the kind of language that is needed to, to, because we can measure it and we, we can formalize it mathematically to describe why we do some things and we avoid other things, and why when we are doing something is difficult to change it to another thing, because if you, we are in an, an attractor, we have to use much more energy to change to another attractor, even if that is possible. Uh, and also, an attractor has, is an important concept because it's kind of if you see a marble going into a valley, that it, 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 the, the marble do, do not need to go to a fixed point; it can. Uh, walk a little bit around and, the, and, and it can move a little bit around. This means that these attractors uh, are um, characterized by always existing variability. There's not le- not only one fixed solution to act upon that uh, attractor. There are several possible solutions that make that work. So this is also a kind of very important concept, the concept of variability of adaptation meaning that we, do, we don't need to do a strict repetition of what we did before, but we have to uh, um, act more functionally, more towards the difficult, uh, the different um, and redundant, redundant ways to achieve a certain goal. So this is why variability is, is so important. But also this variability is not any kind of variability. It's a kind of constrained variability because it's constrained by this attractor meaning that it's not random variability, it's not uh, white noise, it's constrained variability. It's colored, colored if you want, uh, more pink pink noise, brown noise, because it's constrained, it's variability directed towards the possible solutions for this task. So this is also why variability is an important concept, but not any kind of variability, but variability that makes you're more um, adaptable to uh, solve the solicitations of that task. Just in a brief uh, overview, these are some of the key concepts.
0: Research on expertise in sports is mostly focused on the development of uh, expert athletes, on the performers. Do you think it could also help in the development of expert coaches? Do you think it's an area that perhaps researchers should
1: explore better? I I totally agree. I think... uh, This process, uh, all the process of expertise, of the development of expertise, of training, development, all, all the issues related with training has to do a lot with the coaches, of course. If we try to explain performance from this perspective, we now also are in conditions to explain the performer, not of the athlete, but the performance of the coach. So I think it's really time to move into that. To move into how the interaction of the coach with um, the practice setting with the athletes but also with the practice setting as a designer of tasks, how these kind of interactions are more helpful or harmful in this development of the, of the, the learning of the, of, the, of the performer. So I think there is a, a really a need to move into that, this direction. But also, this is also a reflection of what we called uh, of uh, as nonlinear pedagogy. So this is also our call for uh, paying a, a better attention to the role of the coaches and how this process can be uh, can facilitate the learning, not the coach as a. Prescriber, or as the one who tells what to do, but as a facilitator, as someone who creates the conditions for a better learning for the athletes. So this is really a key issue, a key issue, and something that is really important in the near future. So if you allow me to take this um, even a little bit further,
0: that would mean that us as coaches, if we understand the importance of the environment surrounding us that we need to be very, very careful when we um, select or when we accept to work in a certain environment because it's also going to affect us. So, for example, the culture of a club when we move to a different country, these are also things that we should consider uh, bearing in mind that explanation you just gave regarding the relationship between the coach and the performer.
1: Completely. That is a very clever question because that is not only... um a concern that is a need, that is really something that is important to take into consideration. Let me give you an example. I, I have been in contact with many coaches and they they learned some things and they like some of the things that sometimes I, I present to them. And they say that, that they are going to impose that to the clubs, to the coaches, to the directors, to the parents. And the first thing I told them is that if they do that, they will be fired in the, in the day after. They, that that you cannot impose to someone to work in a way that is not understandable by them. So if you want to do something different, you you have really to understand the culture where, where you are, the culture of your club, the, the 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 roles of the directors, the roles of the parents. You don't the worst thing you can do as a coach is to lose your time and energy fighting against them. Because if you are doing that you are losing your energy and time to improve the athletes. So the issue is that how can you you understand that and how by understanding that you work with them in order that both of your goals, the directors and your own goals, or the parents and your own goals, are are, uh, walking towards their achievements and not simply fighting one against the other to show who is the right and who is wrong. So I think you have really to be sensitive to the culture where you are. You, you can change some things of the culture, of course, but if you, the only thing you do is to fight against that culture, you are not doing your job. So I think you have to understand before you try to change. And if you want to change, you have to change in a way that both win. Both parties are winning with your change, not just losing time with the fights and all that. So it's completely clever what you say. It's not imposing your ideas. It's to see how your ideas and your conceptions about training can work in the culture where you are. This is makes a huge difference, I think. One of the main criticisms that I hear
0: um, about the work of uh, sports psychology researchers is that most of the work they conduct um, is done in, in labs. That there's not uh, seem to be an awareness of the reality of coaching in situ, and um, of what the role of the coach entails. If I can also add a personal view, um, I also don't see a great level of understanding of the game, especially in football. Articles can be quite generic. But in your case, I see that you really care about looking at what happens in a game of soccer, for example, its dynamics. When we talk about interdisciplinarity... Do you think it is also important that we don't look only at um, academia, but we do a bigger effort to work in partnership with coaches?
1: Yeah, sure. You you are doing a very nice analysis of this. I, I, I fully agree what you're saying. So uh, in such a way that, uh, and because of uh, what we said in the beginning of our talk or of our discussion, I'm not putting the emphasis on the individual. So if I by doing that if I'm putting the emphasis on this on the individual environment system I'm really becoming interdisciplinary since the beginning so I'm not just studying the psychology the physiology whatever it is I'm, I'm studying the system the, the interaction of the, the individual with the his environment and by doing this I'm seen by the sports psychologists as a sport biomechanicist or by as a sport performance analyst not as a sport psychologist from the sport psycho, from the sport performance analysts i am seen as more uh, psychologist because i'm i'm concerning i'm concerned about decision making and cognition and by the sport scientists i am a little bit um, someone who tried to 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 develop pedagogy so i'm i'm from the people who has a more mechanicistic view, I'm really in, I'm not really in their fields, I'm in, in some other field, which is good, meaning that I'm really interdisciplinary, because I'm not in any one of these fields, I'm really in the middle, I'm trying to grasp the phenomenon as it is and trying to understand it at the best as I can, and because this phenomenon, first, is socially defined, sports is socially defined, sports is not a biological phenomenon, sports is a social phenomenon Um, and because the key issue in sports is behaviour, is performance, is how we do the tasks we do, um, I think psychology is quite well suited for this. But by saying this, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm going to use the traditional psychology, I'm using some psychology that makes me understand how an individual can act in a social and environmental task in order to achieve a goal. And because of this, by some people in psychology, I'm I'm more or less seen as a behaviorist, as someone that is really only concerned with behavior, but also I'm not behaviorist at all. For me, it's not the consequences of behavior that matter, it's not the stimulus and the response, it's all the structure of the interaction, of the behavioral interaction with the environment. And this structural the structure of this behavioral interaction is the result of all the processes in the individual, cognitions, decision-making, ma- uh, decision emotions, whatever it is, but also from all the other circumstances around. So it's, that's why I'm, I like to be in no man's land, because meaning that, that I'm not being a mechanicist, I'm not cutting in slices the thing that I like. And the thing that I like is the phenomenon of sports, is performance, uh, sportive performance.
0: You also lecture in the highly popular Masters in High Performance Football Coaching um, at the University of Lisbon, a degree that was designed uh, with José Mourinho. How do you evaluate your experience in the course so far, now that you have already been involved with it, for a couple of years at least?
1: Well, I'm really enjoying it. It's, um, it's a new level. I had the, the chance of teaching coaches at different levels in Portugal for a long many years, but this post-graduation is quite different because this is quite, is a kind of international selection of coaches. <laughs> so I have really people that are really interested in making the difference in the clubs where they are. And because of that, they don't, they don't want to lose time. They really want to have discussions that change something, that tell something new to them. And this is quite demanding. and in a good way, because it really implies that I try to understand their own perspective and show how the message I'm conveying can add something to what they are doing. So this is quite challenging in that way, uh, but in, in the best way possible, because they are really people that um, take the most of the teachers, take the most of, of the prof- professors. They really demand something that go beyond the ordinary, and I, that, is, that is great for me. <laughs>
0: And they go a little bit beyond that preconceived idea that uh, some people have of coaches looking at uh, academics as they have nothing to learn from them. It's a different
1: era, no? Yeah, Um, and both parts are involved in that. So the students are interested and the the teachers and the academics should, should really present the things in a way that is understandable by them. So because there is this joint effort to make that, the things work if I just appear with my own language without caring what they want to know, if they just want me to tell them their solutions, we will not communicate because some coaches want that. They want me to tell them what to do. And that would be my worst uh, job as possible because I would, I would take his responsibility from what he's doing. So I don't want to do that. And they don't, they don't want me to speak in a way that is not understandable by them. So, If we combine efforts, the things can work really well, but both parties should be active in that solution.
0: I know that you have done some of your postgraduate studies in France with uh, Professor Hubert Ripoll. Are we missing on a lot of knowledge if we are not able to read French?
1: Well, I, I read well French and I speak well French. I don't write well French because French is quite difficult to write. But to, during my uh, undergraduate, I also spent a semester uh, with the, those Erasmus projects in Lyon. So I, 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 I can understand very easily French and read French very well. So that, that was good, but also my, fa- my faculty in the 90s was much more influenced by the French tradition than by the English tradition. English tradition came much later uh, to, have, to exert its influence. So I, but I think the French tradition is, is quite interesting. For example, the, the work of, um, of De La Greagne, are, are really interesting in the understanding of soccer as a well, whole, of teams as a well, whole, the organization of the teams. Uh, and uh, so that, that those influences were interesting. The work of Hubert hipol was particularly important because he was really an experimentalist, uh, interested in sports meaning that even though that he followed a traditional paradigm and he was quite conv- conv- uh, convinced of that but he was a pioneer in trying to bring more sports into these traditional uh, paradigms So it, and, and we had a huge respect for each other he was much more senior than I was but he has also a very huge respect from my own perspective that's why we could work so well so I could understand what uh, he was bringing new and taking a, a little bit more further his pioneering work on this area, but he also helped me to think better uh, in my own perspective of how I can capture these behaviors in a way that is scientifically sound. So this was a very good interaction that I had with him and, uh, and because of that, that book came out. That uh, book that we did in the 2009 came out and it was a very good collaboration. Uh, What I meant
0: was more, um, there seems to be a lot of research published in French um, which does not get into the English-speaking world. Do you feel privileged um, in terms of access to knowledge uh, by being able to speak French or other languages?
1: I understand what you mean, yeah, you you are right, but uh, more than research, I think uh, uh, French has a good uh, thinking tradition more from, that came from more philosophy and I i am a big fan of a French philosopher called uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty and I think uh, if we have a, a philosophical antecedent of ecological dynamics, that would be Maurice Merleau-Ponty and his way of understanding perception, action and embodiment is uh, much um Stronger and uh, and, the via, and older than what all the world is talking about embodiment, cognitive embodiment. All this, I think, comes from Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and his really a, his way of thinking is very is very unique, I think, and uh, has a lot to do with my work. That is one thing. The other thing is that there is also a very good culture in France of discussing deeply the understanding of sports and of, of sport tasks. That is not so typical in English. In English is more the methodological part should be sound. But the French, at least uh, s- since I became aware of, of, the, of these two traditions, are really uh, looking into more the, f- the fundamentals, the theor- theoretical fundamentals of how action is about. And that, is, that also helped me a lot in, in, in thinking differently about the research I was doing. So more than the research, I think, is this rationale and this thinking that is in the French culture that I think is very helpful. And it's a pity that is not so shared uh, with the English tradition or with other traditions. The last question I have for you. Um, you were talking about not being
0: mechanistic, but I could call you a true uh, publishing machine. You have published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, lots of books, book chapters. You also supervise a number of uh, PhD students across the world. Um, And your work has more than 10,000 citations. What is the secret of such uh, productivity? Um, Can you share it, especially with the younger researchers?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know if there is a secret. But I I have a good chance of having excellent students. I had a good chance of creating a very good international network with the Kit David's and Chris Button, Jan Rancho, G.I. Shaw. So we have a very, very good group and we work very well together internationally. And then nationally I had I I, I don't I cannot explain that, but I had a good chance of having very good students, especially from the in the early 2010s, with Bruno Travassos, Ricardo Duarte, Pedro Esteves, Wanda Correia, João Carvalho, Luís Vilar. So I had a very good group of students then, and that group of students spread all over the country, and then they also make other good students start to appear in here and continue to, to do the work. So I think it's more more than my merit, (laughs) it's a a socio-cultural culture that was created here, socio-cultural environment that was created here that attracts good students and uh, I had a good chance of working with them. So, and I have have really to say that because um, all their works are really uh, based on their own merits, it's not me telling them what to do, I just give them all the the tools for them to do, to develop their own ideas. And I, and I think also this attitude of, of empowering the students is also part of, the, the, of the, the success, if you want, because they feel comfortable in, in being new, in, in the, bringing new messages, in, in doing things that were not done before.
0: And that was our interview with uh, Professor Duarte Araújo from the Faculty of Human Kinetics at the University of Lisbon um, in Portugal. I hope you have enjoyed it. Now it's time to move on to December's PhD chat. In this special edition of uh, Coaching with an Accent, we continue with a Portuguese touch while staying within the UK borders. We travel to Cardiff to meet Mara Mata, Portuguese PhD student in sport coaching at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Unlike in uh, previous episodes, this time we speak with a PhD student still at the early stages of her doctoral journey. Mara completed her undergraduate degree in sports science at the University of Porto in Portugal, where she also did a master's in physical education. In parallel to her academic career, Mara is a volleyball coach with experiences in Portugal and more recently in Wales, where she started a PhD in 2016. Without further delays, let's hear our conversation with Mara Mata. Mara, welcome to Coaching with an Accent. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. The first question is the obvious one. What is your PhD about?
2: Uh, So, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is such a good opportunity. Um, So, my PhD is about um, definitely sports coaching. We're very much about trying to understand how coaches who migrate, how they make the cultural transition of coaching in a different context to them, Uh, but how the adaptations that they go through, how does that influence the small interactions that they have within their training sessions so one of the things I've noticed when I started coaching in the UK in my case uh, was that I couldn't approach my athletes the same way that I used to do back in Portugal so a very good example of that would be so I would approach uh, an athlete and the athlete would automatically take a step back because possibly she's in this case it was a girl, so she would think that I was getting too close to her um as a physical distance distance. So uh so she automatically take a took a step back and I thought perhaps I did something wrong. So these small things uh, had a massive impact on my practice and that's what kind of pitched the whole PhD idea.
0: That's a really interesting topic. Um, what have you done so far? What have you learned so far? Um, I'm really keen to hear more about it.
2: <laughs> okay. So, so I'm going to analyze um, my data from a um, sociological perspective. So I haven't started collecting data officially. I've run, I've run back in June um, a pilot, a very small pilot. I'm going to do two case studies. Uh, onto migrant coaches that I can have access e- easily. I can easily access them. Um, so I am at this moment uh, analysing my data from the pilot. But as I'm analysing the data, I see I can possibly see quite a lot of a uh, cultural influence just the way that volleyball um, happens for us here in Cardiff at the moment. Um, just the way that the athletes perceive volleyball is very different, particularly in Wales. Volleyball is not a very popular sport. It's not not taught in schools a lot. So most of the players that come to us or when we go to schools to pitch volleyball to them, they don't even know what volleyball is. So that was one of the biggest shocks that we had when we came here was trying to pitch a sport that we love so much to someone that has no idea what volleyball is. Um, It's been very challenging, but very interesting in the journey. Um, So I'm waiting to interview the coach uh, who took the sessions in that case and see what comes from the data then.
0: Most of the PhD students that I've interviewed so far in the podcast were almost done. They were mainly third-year students you are at the beginning of your journey and are also doing it part-time. So uh, what would you say have been the biggest challenges for you so far? I- I'm sure you've been doing a lot of work already.
2: <laughs> definitely. Uh, I'm also doing it part-time. So I've been doing it for uh, since January 2016. Uh, and doing it part-time was definitely one of the biggest challenges for me. Uh, only very recently, I actually had a desk on what we call the research house. So definitely being involved in a research community has helped me so much in progressing in my research, but also uh, shaping my study and really framing my objectives and my aims uh, were a really big challenge. Um, And also, again, trying to find enough participants to be willing to participate, since, again, volleyball is not very popular. And I really wanted... To do it in volleyball since uh, it's the sport I really relate to and I thought it would be easier for me to pitch some discussions So, um, Yeah, it's been a challenging, very challenging process but very very grateful so far.
0: I'm also curious to know what made you leave Portugal and then to Cardiff in Wales? <laughs>
2: uh, well, uh, definitely moved because I wanted to continue to study Um, And I definitely wanted to do it in sports coaching, as it's one of my biggest passions is about coaching. Um, Moved to Wales for two reasons. Uh, First reason was the staff expertise here in Cardiff Met. Uh, There's quite a lot of good names around the sport coaching area, uh, being one of them, obviously, uh, Professor Robin Jones. Um, And the second reason was just, just because I had some family around so that was a, a really good support here in Cardiff, to for a start.
0: You have experienced Portuguese higher education, and now uh, you're doing your PhD in the UK. Could you tell me the main differences uh, between both countries, um, if any?
2: Very big, very big differences actually. So yeah, I did my undergraduate, um, my undergraduate in um, University of Porto, in Sport Sciences. Um, I then did my master's in teaching PE, also in Porto, uh, and then four years ago moved here to do then my my PhD. Um, Definitely one of the biggest uh, differences is how how much research has such a big impact in an undergraduate degree here, particularly in Cardiff Met, because I now have a chance to do some teaching as well, which is great. Um, but even here in the UK, they have so much support with personal tutors. Um, they can, there's not so much the uh, hierarchy in the education system where you have the teacher or the lecturer or the professor on one side and the student uh, on the other side. But so it's very much a collaborative uh, process of learning, and the learning environment is. Is very very good, and it's a lot of support from um, from a lot of sites. So everyone that's involved has a really uh, important part in um, the students' process and in the in the students' learning for sure.
0: You are still a bit far from completion, especially uh, because you're doing your uh, PhD part time. But do you already have any idea um, about what you want to do after you finish your degree?
2: Oh, that's a tricky question, isn't it? Uh, uh basically so the also the idea of doing a PhD was to be a way to open new doors and new possibilities. Um, definitely one of the possibilities is to stay in academia for sure. Um still being a volleyball a professional volleyball coach would mean having to relocate again. Which will be depending on job job opportunities in UK, ultimately, um, but also perhaps um, something related to performance analysis, since I will be using uh, some performance analysis software on my data analysis. So I might be, I, I can most likely go with sport analyst or something towards that route is also possibility.
0: And that was our conversation with Mara Mata, PhD student at Cardiff Metropolitan University in Wales. We're almost done with this special edition of Coaching with an Accent, but before we go, let's look at our conference schedule. The 5th International Coaching Conference organized by the Cluster for Research into Coaching will take place between the 4th and the 5th September 2019 at the University of Worcester in England. There is an open call for abstracts that ends on Friday, the 15th of March at 4pm. For more information, check their Twitter feed at C2019C altogether. C2019C. Also the International Council for Coaching Excellence has opened the call for abstracts with regards to the 12th ICCE Global Coaches Conference, which will take place in Tokyo, Japan between the 30th October and the 1st November 2019. Next year's theme is Coaching, the cornerstone of education, equity, ethics and excellence in sport. The call for abstracts is open and ends on the 15th January. 2019. And that's all for 2018. We will be back in January with another guest, another student, and the same old accent. Have a fantastic Christmas, and I'll see you in the new year. Bye!